Oh, welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio broadcasting on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced as ever by Matt Horniak. Listeners are invited to call the program at 412-268-9728. That's 268-9WRCT. And you can also send mail to bob at leftout.info. We'll be monitoring the email during the program. So uh, we have a couple of guests lined up for you today on our program. Uh, hopefully they'll, they'll come through and uh, give us a call and everything will work out. Uh, we're supposed to speak with um, John Webb who is uh, helping organize peaceful counter-recruiting demonstrations in Pittsburgh. These are the demonstrations uh, near the recruiting stations um, to, make, to warn people and, and about the dangers of war and, and, and about the recruiting strategies and to try to make sure people know about what's going on with recruitment for the military. And we'll also have a guest, Christian Weller, who's the senior economist from the Center for American Progress, which is a liberal think tank, and we'll be discussing... Um, uh, issues uh, about retirement in the state of Pennsylvania, and a report that uh, that Christian just authored, co-authored, about these these issues for um, those of us um, in the state of Pennsylvania. Is John Webb, are you there? I am. Hello, John. Uh, welcome to Left Out. Thanks. So uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, what you guys are doing. Yeah, the, uh, the big thing we're doing, this is uh, conscience. What we're doing is uh, getting a resolution through the uh, Pittsburgh Public School Board to limit access of military recruiters to high school students. The uh, Right now, uh, military recruiters are present on a regular basis in many of the high schools in Pittsburgh. For example, at Perry High School, we understand that uh, some of them are having lunch with uh, students and, and basically getting in with a cool crowd and making it seem like a great idea to join the military. What we're trying to do is to get the uh, school board to pass a resolution giving them only the access that other recruiters are in, are given. So they'll be there on career days and things like that, but, but no more than that. I see. So you're working with the school board, um, and, uh, and I know that because of the, the No Child Left Behind Act required schools um, to give to the military all of the... Um, all the names of all their students, right? That's right. And they're also required to give the same access um, mm-hmm. that other recruiters get to students. So if, if recruiters can come in, say, and, and you know, like college recruiters come in and so on, other military recruiters are, are required to have the same access. But what they actually have, in fact, is, is much better access just because there's more of them and they're really under a lot of pressure to, to recruit uh, students. So, so they're there far more than than other recruiters are. And we're just trying to get them to scale it back to uh, just be equal with the other recruiters. Okay. Well, are you guys involved? So what's the name of your organization again? And if you, there's a yep. web, Is there a website so people can... It's called can... Conscience, and there's a website. It's called, the conscience website is consciencepgh.org. So the word consciencepgh.org. Um, and there's, there's more information about the resolution there. What we're trying to do is to... Uh, get people to testify at the school board meetings and also to contact their school board representative to, to uh, let them know they support the resolution. You can see a copy of the resolution there. Great. So were you, are, have you been involved in, in the, any of the other 
uh, more de- visible demonstrations uh, that are taking place. I know Merton Center has announced them that they're taking place on a weekly basis. Yeah, there, there's uh, uh, demonstrations being ordered by uh, b- being organized by POG, and actually, um, I'm I'm a Quaker, Danny, and and we we look for a nonviolent resolution, including non really non confrontational resolution to to a lot of these <coughs> these issues. So we're we're talking with POG. We've worked with POG in the past. But we uh, we tend to draw the line at, at pretty aggressive uh, tactics. So you weren't involved at all in that in that uh, confrontation with Jeb Bush that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. No, and and I, frankly, I I consider that to be somewhat counterproductive. I understand that that other people might feel differently, but we're we're looking for. I mean, in fact, if you look at look at the way things are going, we're winning this argument. We're winning the argument against the war. And there's lots of people out there that are that are ready to be brought on and to um, work against the war. What we I think we have we have to do is to reach out to those people and try to to uh, persuade them with uh, open dialogue. And and I don't think this is the time to to really take a confrontational approach. Okay. Um, any final comments, or Bob? Do you have any any comments about? Uh no. Nope. Okay. So this. So we've been speaking with John Webb, and um, he's working with the Conscience Group, ConsciencePGH.org, on organizing a um, petition, right, to That's influence right. the school board into to just allowing the military recruiters the same access. You're not. You're not saying they can't get access. You're just saying make the, make put them on, on an equal footing from the other other recruiters, the other uh, people. You know, uh, trying to get the students' um, attention. So thanks a lot, John, um, and I um, hope uh, good luck in in your uh, in your efforts. Thanks for calling into uh, Left Out. Okay, so um, in a moment we're going to have Christian Weller on, but first let me announce the phone number. If you want to give us a call, if you have any of, of your own comments, um, we're broadcasting live from WRCT, and uh, the phone number is 412-268-9728. So please give us a call. So uh, we have guests now. Um, I believe that Christian Weller is on the phone. Christian, are you there? Oh, no. Christian uh, Christian is not there anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, he was. I think you had a couple more announcements to make there, Danny, right? Uh, yes. Oh, those. right. I forgot about that. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a couple more announcements um, we've got. Um, first of all, the program Law and Disorder is uh, a, a program coming out of, the, out of New York um, by, by uh, some well-known lawyers, uh, prominent civil rights lawyers. Uh, the program is called Law and Disorder, and it's going to be broadcast on WRCT at 9 a.m. Monday, right after Democracy Now. I think I listened to a, I tried to listen last Monday, or was it Monday before? It wasn't on. One, it wasn't on. It was this past Monday, I believe. That, yeah. Well, it was on yesterday, mm-hmm. and it'll be on from now on. I say, yeah, um, a week ago it wasn't on, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, also, the other thing is that Amy Goodman visited uh, last Saturday. It was a great, uh, a great event. It filled up the room with people. Um, the, 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 the speech she gave was recorded and um, <clears throat> very inspiring speech. And uh, it will be played on, on WRCT, I believe, uh, uh, at 7 o'clock on uh, <coughs> Thursday, not this Thursday, but a week from a week from now. We'll be having uh, playing the speech uh, in full that she gave um, on Saturday here uh, at, on the campus of Carnegie Mellon. 
All right. So uh, we're hoping uh, to, uh, to uh, give, have our guests on the line. Matt, is our guest ready? So we're, we're featuring today uh, Dr. Christian Weller, who's a senior economist for the Center, of American, Center for American Progress. He's previously been uh, a guest on Left Out, uh, maybe something like a year ago or a little less than a year ago, talking about Social Security at the time when our very own Rick Santorum, amongst others, were doing their best to do away with the most successful and popular uh, uh, benefit program that our government uh, has operates. Um, and he's here today uh, to talk with us about a new report he's written called uh, Rewarding Hard Work, Give uh, Pennsylvania Families a Shot at Middle-Class Retirement Benefits. Uh, Kristen Weller, welcome to Left Out. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. We're it's a delight to have you back. I wondered if you could please summarize uh, the report that you've written for us. I was having a look at it uh, earlier today. I wonder if you could give us uh, give our our listeners who haven't read it, I presume, uh, although we do have a link to it on the leftout.info webpage, uh, a summary of your of your work here. Well, I, I, let me take a step back here, um, especially okay. since you mentioned Social Security. It probably strikes many listeners as odd that um, a Washington think tank would start writing about uh, retirement security in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> and the main reason is exactly the, the, the link to Social Security. Um, the fight against the attacks against Social Security uh, mounted in 2005 by conservatives to really dismantle the program, cut benefits, um, stemmed from an inherent ideological dislike of guaranteed benefits, of defi- what we call defined benefits. Um, that attack on Social Security was ultimately unsuccessful. The president couldn't even get Congress to pass, to, to even get any legislation into committee, never mind out of committee. Um, and with that unsuccessful fight behind them, conservatives looked for new targets. And then the only real target, the, the only bastion of retirement income security that you'll see around the country in terms of guaranteed benefits or public sector defined benefit plans. So what you see is numerous efforts at the state level where conservative groups are basically attacking these public sector defined benefit plans. Um, Pennsylvania is one of those states. And um, so we, we had a relationship with a local think tank. This was actually a joint effort between the Center for American Progress and the Keystone Research Center in Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. And, and so we decided, okay, well, let's, let's take one of the fights and then take it head on and, and basically lay out our case for public sector pension plans, what to do in Pennsylvania, showcase why we think these plans are right. Now, um, the arguments in the, in, the, in the paper, let me go through them very quickly. So maybe you so, could, uh, if I may uh, jump in, if you could maybe summarize for our listeners uh, the jargon, divine benefit, and so on. That's a good point. Okay. Um, when we say defined benefit plans, we mean traditional pensions. Pensions were um, people have a guaranteed retirement income, lifetime income in retirement after they have worked for a certain amount of years, often decades. Um, the typical formula, for instance, in Pennsylvania is for every year that you worked in Pennsylvania, for instance, as a teacher, you get 2.5% of your final average pay as your income. Um, so let's say you worked for the, the, the state you get 75%. For 30 years, you get 75% mm-hmm. uh, of your final average. You've got to remember, though, other than Social Security, those benefits do not increase typically with cost of living. So if inflation eats away, which is often an issue, especially for older women. Um, the, the first Who are longer lived, I guess, is the who, point. Who have much longer life expectancy yeah, right, right, okay. and, and who often couples in particular tend to spend 
money as if they all died at the same time. Um, they, they plan basically for the life expectancy of the husband, uh, leaving huh. the wife with very little at the end of um, when she becomes a widow, which is more likely to be the case than the other way around. Mm-hmm. The, we, we, what we did in this case is we, first of all, made the argument, and which is an important case that the people don't understand, <laughs> that pensions are not a gift from the employer. They're not a golden watch. They're something that people actually pay for. In the case of Pennsylvania, public sector teachers, for instance, pay part of the pension. They actually pay regular contributions into the pension plan on top of the money that they pay on Social Security. In addition to that, teachers in particular get below market wages. They, they get paid a little less than um, what people with college educations or master's degrees could get in the private sector. That is offset by somewhat higher benefits, um, pension benefits. And so job security. They, so they're, they're, they're really getting that, that, they're paying for that one way or the other. It's, it's an earned benefit. It is a reward that, that they work for. And um, what they end up with is not a golden parachute. It doesn't allow people to have a second or third home in retirement. Golden parachute? Who's saying, who's, are, these, are they using that term about the, the, these pensions? A lot of people attack public sector pension plans as generous. <coughs> And what you find is... And these are the people who think it's great that some CEOs make $100 million a year when the company is when falling apart. The same people. That, those are exactly the same people. And okay. I just want to make sure... That, 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 yeah. the, the main attack actually comes from somebody who used to work for Hershey, which has just eliminated its pension plan for new employees. So, oh, you mean the corporate, Hershey Corporation? The or? Hershey Corporation. Uh-huh. Um, so it is fine for a former executive from Hershey to, to have a golden parachute, but then to attack public sector workers with the argument that uh, they have it better than pro- many private sector workers and they should be as miserable as many private sector workers, uh, which is an incredibly odd argument uh, to, to really lift the race to the bottom. Uh, as a, as a goal. A public policy uh, vision. Right. Let me just interrupt one second. Uh, if you'd like to give us a call, we're talking to Christian Weller, an economist from the Center for American Progress. Uh, the number is 412-268-9728. So sorry to interrupt there, but no, uh, no, please right. proceed with... Well, uh, I mean, the, the, what we find in the report is not only do people, the, the public sector employees, teachers, judges, police officers, firefighters, nurses, pay for the benefits, the benefit that they end up with is basically adequate. It, it allows them to meet the basic thresholds for a decent standard of living in retirement. By that, by definition, we typically mean they can replace, together with Social Security, the typical worker in Pennsylvania who works a full career in, for the state of Pennsylvania can replace about 75 to 80 percent of the pre-retirement income. So they, they see a pay cut of about 20 percent when they retire. That's typically assumed to be adequate. Um, so it's an adequate benefit, but it's not a golden parachute. It doesn't allow them to, to live a lavish lifestyle. The other part is, and many people accept that. Um, they understand that pension benefits or good benefits, adequate benefits. The, the big question that many people have is, well, is that affordable? Can the state still, still afford that? Um, and we go through in detail that, A, the pension plans in Pennsylvania are still very well funded. They're very well run. Um, by all financial standards. They're very low cost. They have very high rates of return. They're very professionally managed. Um, but they will require ultimately more money. And it's not because teachers were too greedy. Uh, it was just basically the state 
didn't take put enough money into it when the times were really good in, in 1999 and 2000 2001 when the stock markets were performing at an extraordinary level the state basically didn't put enough money into the plan and that's now catching up with the state but it's not the fault of the employees and it's also not something that ultimately means the the contribution rates that the, the state has to put into the plan are going to go out of control it basically says okay well we're ultimately averaging out the, the years where the state didn't put anything in the years uh, have where the state has to make catch-up uh, contributions to the plan um, but it, the, the main point here is that the plans are sustainable, that the, the state can afford them. And quite frankly, the state should maintain those plans because the main logic for an employer like the state of Pennsylvania to offer a pension plan is um, to recruit very skilled workers. So close to 50% of the, prior, the, the public sector workforce have a college degree to maintain, to attract those people and to retain them. Um, you do need something like a pension plan. Otherwise, you can't do it as a state. That's uh, part of the attraction of the job. Uh, is it possible to quantify? I wasn't aware of there being a shortfall. I'm not sure how, how, that missed, how I missed that, but is it possible to quantify the extent of the shortfall? Well, the, and the how state, does it compare to private sector shortfalls for those companies that have defined benefit plans? That, that is a very good question. Um, the, the state <laughs> plans, the big two large pension plans in Pennsylvania, they're called SERS. Uh, the state employee retirement system, and then the, the public school employee retirement system, PSERS. Mm -hmm. um, those are the two big ones. They have a little bit over 90% of what they need to pay all future benefits okay. that they have already promised. Um, okay. Up till a few months ago, 90% in, in the private sector was considered actually fully funded. Uh, that's what I was going to ask, right. Um, nowadays, uh, the standard has, because we we've had have seen large shortfalls, there has been a rethinking uh, among experts saying, like, well, that the, state, the states in the private sector should really go to 100%, largely because we, we've undergone a period of extreme financial market swings, and, and we, we want the employers to build up more of a buffer than we have in the past. So that the states should really go up to 100%. And um, I think that the shortfalls are there. There, there are shortfalls. Um, but if you look at the numbers in Pennsylvania in particular, they result to a very large degree. In fact, we just got numbers from PSERS, um, close to two-thirds of the shortfalls for the next 10 years um, are caused by the decline in the stock market. They're not a result. The, the overwhelming majority of the shortfall is, is not a result of benefit increases or manipulation or whatever else people want to claim. They're really a result of extreme financial market circumstances. Just to give you a sense, when I say extreme, the decline in the stock market that we saw, uh, by my calculation, actually was larger than the decline in 1929, um, but at least it was in the same ballpark. As you're looking at 20% or so, right? Uh, even larger than yeah. that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, especially in the NASDAQ, mm -hmm. uh, it was la larger than that. So you're, you're talking uh, basically once-in-a-century event, and that clearly has hard pension plans. There, there's no doubt about it, but uh, I, I think what people need to keep in mind is it is something that happens once in a hundred years, and we should re be really careful to kind of abandon pension plans that have worked extremely well to, to give people a good shot at a middle-class retirement 
um, just because of that extreme circumstance. So, so what is it that uh, people are proposing uh, uh, specifically, and who and who is behind it? I mean, who in, in Pennsylvania, like which politicians and so on? This well, this being election in, season, I would like you to name names. <laughs> in, in Pennsylvania, um, well, the, the good proposal actually comes from a Republican lawmaker named Nickel. Um, I, I, I think he represents Hanover. Um, um, who basically says, and we're proposing in that in the report too, that the state should make regular contributions to the pension plans. That the, the state should just simply put into the plan what people earn in terms of benefits in a given period every year. Um, that hasn't been the case neither in the private sector nor in the public sector. And it would just simply regularize the contributions. It, it would avoid large swings in contributions, but just simply saying, okay, well, put the money into the plan that the people are earning every year. Um, the other side says, well, we have a slightly underfunded pension plan. Just Let's just simply abandon that plan. Um, the other side, the attackers here, um, I don't know any politicians, but it's the Commonwealth Foundation in Pennsylvania. Um, what we're saying is the pension plans are in very good shape um, compared to other states. Um, they can be maintained with some modest changes, um, as I said, like regularize the contributions from the state. But that shouldn't be the only thing that the state should undertake. Um, the, as I said, this whole debate over the attack on public sector pension plans is kind of elevating a race to the bottom argument um, to a public policy vision. And then what we're saying is, well, instead of engaging in a race to the bottom, let's raise the bottom. Let's improve <laughs> private sector retirement security. And the states, well, I think many private sector workers should have defined benefit pension plans. Um, the, the states can't do anything on these traditional pension plans um, that, for instance, Bethlehem Steel and others had. Um, but what the states can do is they can improve retirement savings in the more the, the more recent form of retirement savings plans. They're often known as 401k plans or individual retirement accounts. Right. Um, the states can really help, especially small employers, low-income families, a lot in that regard. Um, we propose specifically three things. We're saying the state should open up a branch of the existing savings plan that the state already manages for its employees to private sector employers. So a private sector employer, if you're a small company, let's say in Carlisle or in Pittsburgh, and you want to <coughs> offer a low-cost, low-risk investment option for your employees of savings plan, you can basically say, okay, well, I'm going to collect your money. I'm going to give it to the state state agency. The state agency opens up um, a small investment pool um, that is very low cost, very low risk um, for the private sector employers. The state wouldn't manage the funds. The funds would be managed by a private sector entity. But because you're, you're talking about lots and lots of small employers signing on to it, you can offer this at a fairly low cost, below basically what people are being charged um, in the market, which is often a big hurdle for small employers. Oh, okay. Yeah, let me let me just I'm I'm sorry. Let me just ask you kind of a question. The 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 difference between this is elementary, but I just want to clarify it. To you it's elementary, but the the quite difference between like a 401k plan where you put money in throughout your your employment and then when you retire you can take that money. But that that's not um What's that? What's the, well, that's that's a finite amount of money. And what if you live to be ninety years old? That might be, it might run out by the time you're eighty, and it's gone. 
right? I mean, right. Whereas, whereas the kind of retirement, or, there's another name for it, but I, maybe you can tell me what it's called, the plan that the uh, state of Pennsylvania is offering to the teachers and stuff. Right. Well, the, it's, the, it's the, a, typical, the typical name of, of what the state is, is offering is defined benefit. Um, it, because the, the government, right, uh, right, in right. this case the employer, basically says, well, don't worry about the investments because that's my concern as the employer. It's like an insurance policy because you, insurance you don't policy, know how exactly. much how, you don't know how much you're going to get out of it. It depends on how you, how long you live, right? Whereas right. if the four hundred one k plans, you know you're going to have a guaranteed life stream, lifetime stream. Of right. Income. It's like Social Security. It's the same the same it's type exactly of setup. It's exactly the same thing. The only difference is that Social Security goes up every year with inflation. The state plans don't automatically go up with inflation. But it is basically the same mechanism here. It is a guaranteed stream of income in retirement, you don't have to... Regardless of how old... Corporations used to offer that type of plan, right, to their employees. That was was pretty common. That was the only form, basically, that employers offered. But then then gradually over the last 20 years, they've switched over to the IRA plans and the 401k plans, right, which is not an insurance plan. It's simply an investment plan. Well, that's... we, We typically try to avoid calling 401ks pensions. They're retirement savings plans. Right, yes. It's exactly that. I mean, people basically put money into a plan, often typically on a pre-tax basis, um, and then by the time they retire, they have to make a choice of how they're going to spend that money. Um, and, and in many cases, people just simply sit on that lump sum and, and draw on it as long as there is some money, and when it runs out, it runs out, um, which is the, by far one of the biggest drawbacks of, of those plans. Well, um, if it doesn't the alternative run out, is, you can inherit it. The money can be inherited by your... The money can be inherited... Um, but it's often that the balances are so small, you're in most likelihood you're going to run out of the yeah. money before you leave anything to your kids or your spouses. Um, the alternative is um, you could basically go to an insurance company, uh, pay a substantial fee, and get a guaranteed lifetime income. It's called an annuity. Um, but it's very costly, um, and, and there's a lot of complexity to that, but it is bar- largely the, the, the point is that those products are very costly. So you're, you're paying um, your, 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 under defined contribution plans, you're facing greater risk, you're facing greater costs um, than under the traditional pension plans. Oh. I think the best way to, to understand the costs is the employer who, who is responsible for the traditional pensions basically pays wholesale prices in the financial markets. Whereas people who manage their own little accounts pay, pay retail prices, and the, the difference in the financial markets and the difference are in fees are substantial and can reduce your lifetime savings substantially. So, one, one, you know, just a, another big sort of big question, a, a, a high level question, um, is, you know, American businesses and traditionally have been the basis for retirement uh, accounts. Also, health insurance was employer based, and now we're moving away from. The the, the the retirement uh, uh, you know obligations as well as and they're trying to get out of the health obligations as well now in, in uh, American business and of course it is a big burden especially with the health care on American businesses if they have to pay for that and then try to compete against countries that have national health care systems um, doesn't it make sense for both businesses and consumers to just move this over to the government so that Retirement and health plans are all kind of migrated over to the government. So if I if I work for a lot of years and and, and at a company and why can't the you know I can I why can't I get government life insurance, government uh, 
uh, retirement insurance just like uh, the, the Pennsylvania employees have. I mean, I don't, I don't, doesn't that make sense? To, it makes sense to me. Why saddle businesses with this obligation? That's a societal obligation. We have to support our old people. You can't have, you know, people in, in the street. Well, uh, I, I think there is something to that argument, when it, particularly when it comes to health care, because I, I think that the problem <coughs> on health care, um, the, the, there, there is truly an unsustainability problem. Uh, people, the companies can no longer afford eventually, the, the, and, and individuals can no longer afford the, the, the sharp rises in health insurance premiums. So there is clearly a need to intervene. And, and, and you look at states like Massachusetts um, and others, who are playing around with some sort of a universal system. Hawaii is another one. Um, so there, there is a move towards getting the government involved. Um, on the pension side, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat um, more ambivalent about uh, handing this over to the government. And the first part is we wouldn't even know how, what that exactly would look like. But the other part is also there is a, a strong interest, in particular for employers, but um, employees benefit from it, to offer these pension plans. Um, I mean, it's a voluntary system in the U.S., which makes it actually unique um, in the industrialized world to offer these additional benefits um, on a voluntary basis. But the majority of Fortune 500 companies offers traditional pension plans, and they could easily get out of it. There's no obligation, no legal obligation for them to offer that. Um, The reason why they're hanging on to them is it is an important recruitment and ultimately a very important retention tool for skilled workers, and workers do benefit all workers benefit from those pension plans. So there, there is an argument from, from the human resource side um, to, to keep this as an employer-based system for the time being, especially since there's nothing unsustainable about those systems. Um, so I, I, I think in that regard, um, I, I think the mixture that we have in the U.S. between a good Social Security system and an employer system where it works, it actually offers very good benefits okay. uh, where people have it. So I to think keep that mixture, um, it, it, is, it, it, it works for employers and it works for employees. I think we interrupted you with your three points and your recommendations. Um, uh, one was to uh, provide, if you could recap, uh, provide right. access um, for small employers to the, uh, to the uh, pension management program currently run by the state. Well, I, I think the main point is that, that, yeah. that when you talk about retirement security, you really have to talk about both. You have to talk about the public sector, the private sector, improving the public sector. And in the private sector, as I said, there are three recommendations we're making. Give access to small employers to a small, to low-cost, low-risk investment option. Um, the other one is you could require um, that every employer over a certain size, we say 10 people because that's a proposal that's been floated around, but any employer above a certain size would have to at least offer his or her employees the option to have direct deposits from their paycheck into an individual retirement account. Mm -hmm. It just makes it simpler for people to save. Um, And simplicity, as we know, in savings actually helps people to ultimately accumulate some wealth uh, over their lifetime. And then the third part is we do understand that many low-income families often do not have enough means to save enough for retirement. And while I think this, the federal government is falling short on this, um, there's a room for the state governments to step in and basically help out, especially for low-income families, and say, okay, well, if, this, if a low-income family wants to save $500 a year, the state basically matches that with another $500, up to certain income limits for families. That, that would be a very progressive, very effective means for really help low- and moderate-income families to start building up some savings. So those three measures together, a low-cost, low-investment option, low-risk investment option, mandatory payroll deduction into individual retirement accounts, 
make a big difference, especially for low and moderate income families in terms of building wealth for retirement. Well, it sounds pretty perfectly sensible to me, but I also uh, wonder whether uh, whether our government will uh, will act on that. Is there any legislation pending, or is there something some uh, you know some specific uh, thing that you're trying to do or trying to oppose here, or is this just a general? Uh, you know, fact-finding uh, report that you've written? Well, for, for me, as a kind of a Washington outsider, I came in kind of as the uh, pension expert on this one. Um, but uh, the, the partner organization we're working with at the Keystone Research Center in, in Harrisburg, and, and they're very savvy um, uh, when it comes to turning, to promoting policy proposals. They actually are working on at least taking the first part of this proposal. It's called, they, they promoted a few years ago called the Pension, uh, Pennsylvania Voluntary Accounts. There's some movement at the state level to really uh, elevate the, the low-cost, low-risk investment option for private sector employers um, to kind of a legislative agenda. It, it's happening, uh, and the Keystone Research Center wants to make it happen in, in Pennsylvania. It's happening in Washington State. It's happening in Michigan. So there is a slow move, movement here that's gaining some momentum to, to promote that. Um, the other proposal, actually, in some form or another, did show up in government Governor Rendell's um, task force for working families in 2005 in their final report. So there is some interest and some understanding of those issues in Pennsylvania, uh, which makes it also a lot of fun um, to write about it because we're not necessarily running um, against closed doors everywhere. We do find open ears and, um, when we talk to people about this. All righty. Well, thanks very much for that uh, report. We have a link to uh, Christian Weller's report on the Left Out webpage. One question I wanted to ask you, uh, Christian, it's a bit out of left field, but before before I go and while I have a professional economist on the line, I'll ask. Uh, I noticed that the, in today's uh, newspaper and uh, the Washington Post in particular, no doubt you've read it, there's a headline saying, Lower Deficit Sparks Debate Over Tax Cuts Roll. So this is uh, something that has been going on at least since the Reagan era where uh, uh, tax cuts are said to be, uh, you know, self-sustaining, that the more you cut taxes, the more revenue you take in. And I guess you just keep doing that until, you know, you even start paying out taxes and then you take in even more revenue, I presume. So how, do, how does that how does that go? Is this a perpetual motion machine that the Republicans have going here or what? I wish, uh, or at least the White House, White House wishes. Um, there is no evidence, and the article actually cites a few former administration officials who basically have concluded um, that there's no evidence that cutting taxes will ultimately lead to general more, to greater revenue. In fact, uh, for 2006, for the fiscal year of 2006, which just ended on October 1st, um, if the tax, if, if President Bush had not enact, enacted the tax cuts, <coughs> we wouldn't have had a deficit. So the tax cuts don't pay for themselves. Um, there's also uh, no evidence that the tax cuts especially the tax cuts that President Bush is particularly proud of, the, the ones in 2003, which cut taxes on dividends and capital gains, there's no evidence that they promoted investment or job growth. Um, I, I think when it comes to tax cuts, we should take the president at his word. At his words, He says, well, we cut taxes by $1.1 trillion over the last few years, and we stimulated job growth and investment. Investment is the lowest in terms of size of the economy since the 1960s, and job growth is the lowest since the Great Depression. So when we talk bang for the buck, we're not really getting a bang for the buck. We're getting a whimper for the buck. And, and I think 
the clear evidence is the tax cuts do not work the way the White House has promoted them, which also means they're not really giving them the boost in terms of revenues that they promised people that they would come. So I have another just question about economists. I mean, in, you know, in the, in, the, in the science, in hard sciences, we can have things like global warming. And, you know, there, after a few decades, uh, there were scientists who agreed that, yes, it was happening, you know, eventually reached the point where there's, you know, 10,000 scientists saying it's happening and one not saying it's not happening. Now, unfortunately, with economics, it doesn't seem to be like that. You seem to just have totally political. You can always come up with an argument that says uh, changing this parameter affects the other parameter in the way that I say it does because there exists some path through the economy, you know, with pluses and minus signs that cause it to change in the way I want it to change. So is it, I mean, what you're saying seems so obvious and so simple, but yet I'm guessing that you could find thousands of Republican economists who would swear on a Bible that, that, you know, these tax cuts are wonderful in all the ways that Bush says they are. Well, I mean, for one thing, uh, sorry to break it to many of my economist colleagues out there, we're not a hard science. Uh, I mean, we're a social science. We have to deal with human behavior and, and the, the uncertainties that that brings with it. Um, so they're, they're, that makes it fun, but on the other hand, it makes, makes it less predictable. But the other part, I think you're hitting on an important point. Um, the big test case for tax cuts will ultimately lead to more revenue was the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. And most economists, even conservative economists, ultimately concluded, well, it didn't quite work the way theoretical models had predicted. So um, it kind of became, at this point, it's more the purview of political hacks more than economic realists and economists. Yeah. Um, so, but, but I think you have to understand this is an administration that has put truly political ideology over economic or any other competence. Right. Um, and, and uh, I mean, you've got to look at the, at the Treasury alone. I mean, the, President Bush wanted to fire Jon Snow uh, basically right after the election in 2004 and, and just couldn't get rid of him. Not because Mr. Sloan was a powerful, it's just nobody wanted to take the job. Um, because no self-respecting economist or most self-respecting economists don't want to work in an administration that, that doesn't respect um, decent research and, and, and put ideology over research. So I, I think you, you have to understand that this administration has ignored advice from, from good economists who've worked for them um, and who are now outside of the administration and basically saying, well, we always told them yeah. um, it wouldn't okay. work the way they said it would So work. it is almost like what I said at this point. I mean, that, that scholarly economists, respectable economists, are almost unanimously in agreement. I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but that, that's my way of hearing it. Unanimous, but there, there is a lot of agreement among economists um, that, that deficits don't, that, that tax cuts don't pay for themselves. Um, I think that, as a notion, uh, would probably be supported by, by most economists. So, well, uh, okay, well, we're going to uh, thank you, uh, Christian, for appearing on Left Out this week. Uh, we've been talking to Christian Weller, who's a senior economist from the uh, Center for American Progress, and he's been talking with us about his recent uh, work on uh, rewarding hard work about uh, pension benefits for Pennsylvanians, which I encourage you to read. It's available on the Left Out and Info website, and also uh, talking about some other economic matters. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for appearing, Christian. Thank you very much for having me. Anytime. We'll have a uh, brief uh, musical break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. 
Independent Radio, broadcasting on WRCT 88.3 FM. We've just uh, finished a conversation with uh, Christian Weller from the Center for American Progress, talking about uh, pension benefit programs in Pennsylvania and more generally about the state of the economy and the Bush administration's allegations about tax cuts producing greater uh, greater income and reducing deficits, which uh, seems to be at variance with reality. Uh, as usual, but then when you have faith-based government, who needs reality? Uh, Danny, I think you have so, a... Yeah, uh, we're on the air for another 12 minutes or so until 7 o'clock. If you want to give us a call, call. Uh, 412-268-9728. So um, I just had a comment about a show. It was uh, two couple of weeks ago, uh, at 60 Minutes, um, I watched the program, and uh, there was a one of their segments was about a, well phenomenon that's occurred lately there's been a rash of attacks uh by kids on homeless people in this country so like high school kids you know beating up on you know people poor homeless people in the street and uh there's been caught on video various times that people have died uh, um, and in fact a couple of kids are being you know have been uh, convicted and are going to jail or already in jail uh for for killing a, a, a homeless man I, I think that was in florida so they had a they had a a show about this on 60 Minutes, and, and the, 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 the thrust of the show had to do with this uh, these videos called the Bum Fight Videos. So some guy um, created a series of videos where he would go out and he would pay bums or, you know, homeless people to do stuff. And, um, you know, they would have fights with each other. He'd find two guys who were best friends with each other. He'd pay them to have a fight. He'd video the whole thing. You know, uh, and then he'd sell these videos. And he'd give them, you know, bottles of beer, or, you know, things like that, uh, and and get them to do his bidding. And um, just a general whole sort of, uh, I don't know, the gestalt, the the whole feeling for these videos is, you know, these people are worthless. They're disgusting. They're animals, basically. And uh, when 60 Minutes interviewed these kids who had, you know, had attacked. Some of the kids who attacked or some of the men were actually already in jail for killing a homeless man. They talked about that they used to watch these bum fight videos. And that, that motivated, that got them excited. And they went outside and they found a homeless guy and they, and they beat him up. And um, so, you know, clearly there was a connection between these disgusting videos and the, um, uh, and the acts that these kids were, um, were, uh, were committing. But you know what occurred to me during the, during the program? Um, oh, and the sixty minutes sort of took a good attitude. They tried to they confronted the director of the movie, and they um, they told him, "Don't you think this is terrible? What you're doing? You're causing these terrible things to happen." And he was wishy washy. You know, he tried to defend himself. But what they didn't point out, there's something else really going on here. It seems to me, <coughs> which is that there's it's not just what the bum fight videos. I mean. Society in general has abandoned these people. And um, the fact that they're there and nobody's helping them, and there's more of them now than there used to be, um, it, it just sort of creates this, this, this environment where, you know, these, these are not humans anymore. They're just, they're, they're to be ignored and to be, you know, to be um, disgusted by. And, then, and, and uh, society has sort of, created this attitude that allows people to, to go to go and do that that's that's what i think well this is uh this attitude has been fostered for decades i mean i certainly remember it in the reagan era but it's been elevated to uh a level of uh, pseudo respectability by the likes of uh 
uh, Rush Limbaugh, for example, on his radio program is con- constantly blaming yeah. the victim and belittling poor people and uh, and telling everyone that they should just, that this is the way that they should behave and the way that they should think. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's remarkable, uh, remarkable how to the extent to which it has uh, has really taken hold with uh, such a number of people actually who uh, who buy into this. I mean, we see this uh, quite often. It ties in with another item on 60 Minutes, which I'll mention only briefly because it's gotten a lot of uh, coverage in the press, which is this uh, uh, book by David Quo, who was uh, the former number two man in the White House uh, faith-based initiative programs, right. who uh, worked under uh, uh, John, uh, John, I think, DiUlio, who uh, previously uh, complained about the management of the faith-based programs. I encourage uh, listeners to uh, to have a look at it. It, uh, it ties in with, in fact, uh, some uh, segment we did on Left Out uh, about a year or so ago in which we had uh, Thomas Frank on the air. And you'll recall, uh, regular listeners will recall, Paul Thomas Frank is the author of a of a, a fascinating and amusing book called What's the Matter with Kansas, and uh, is using Kansas as a kind of crucible for analyzing developments in uh, American politics, particularly on the religious right. And one of his points was the way in which uh, people who have, uh, let's say, uh, conservative religious uh, persuasion are used by the Republican right for really their larger purposes, which is to uh, which is like things like tax cuts for the wealthy, getting away doing away with the estate tax uh, and on and on and on. And right. uh, and uh, and what's going on here with Quo's book is that he uh, is admitting that this is true, and he tells tells tales from inside the White House about how people like Karl Rove and the like ridicule uh, the various people like Dobson or or or, uh, or uh, what's his Falwell name, or... uh, Falwell, yeah, and uh, all those characters and call them ridiculous or ninnies or whatever uh, behind their back. I mean, I, I call them ridiculous myself, but I, I would happily do it to his face. I don't. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I don't hug him and kiss him and tell him how wonderful he is and take his money and then uh, and then turn around and do that. Uh, and I think the the uh, the thing is is that uh, one one point that Quo makes, which is rather fascinating, is that the actual people involved are not fools. They know this. So James Dobson and that type, they know this, right? They know that the people on the Republican side are 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 are, are doing this or behaving this way. They know this, and they're trying to use each other is what's going on. Right. But the people who don't know this are the people who follow them. The people who follow shyster crooks like uh, Pat Robertson and these these kind of characters. It's amazing. I mean, they have such a naive belief in the virtuosity of these people. It's astonishing. And if you look across the board, it ties in with the remark you're making. I mean, look at what they sell as Christianity. And look at what they sell as, you know, Christian behavior. Look at the people who are setting themselves up as the paragons of virtue. It's really, it's really quite amazing. Uh, at the end of Quo's book, he makes a remark in which uh, he says that uh, he finds that there's something fundamentally wrong with, and I'll quote, taking Jesus and reducing him to some precinct captain, to some get-out-the-vote guy. Uh, which is sort of what they what they were doing, and he describes in detail. Actually, I would say criminal abuses of government resources, of using the faith based initiatives uh, to uh, actually just as campaign tools directly, and not just any old faith base. But they have, you see, they have uh, preferred faiths. You see, and this is the whole reason why we have uh, we have uh, uh, protections in the uh, tattered constitution. 
uh, for separation of church and state is precisely because what will happen and what does happen is the government is going to make preferences for which sorts of faiths are okay. So you can bet it's no problem for, you know, Christian fundamentalist group X, Y, Z, and W to get uh, to get the ear and the money and the support and resources from people like Bush. But if you're a Muslim, well, you can forget it. Okay, yeah. let, let alone, uh, you know, if you're uh, if you're a Scientologist or worship the flying spaghetti monster or whether you're uh, any other kind of uh, any other kind of religious person. Indeed, I've recently heard a segment uh, was it on Democracy Now. I recently heard a segment, possibly in NPR, about uh, someone where they were using a kind of peer review process to allocate money for these faith based initiatives, and they were all from these fundamentalist Christian right wing organizations, and they knew perfectly well how to score the reports, uh, the mm-hmm. proposals, and if yeah. they were if they were not from Christian organizations, they were scored a zero. So, you know, if you're a Jew, if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Muslim, if you're, well, any of the millions of things you could possibly be, well, your faith, that doesn't count. The only one that counts is uh, the Christian faith, according to the Bush administration. And that's just merely because of their political purposes. They have a way of using this for their political ends. And so it's worthwhile that uh, Quo, looking into this to find out what Quo has to say, because it really exposes what Thomas Frank has inferred from other data, but as far as I recall, not direct evidence of this kind, but from just looking at behavior of what happens, and and uh, it's very interesting that it's uh, that's playing out the way it is. So that's kind of fun to look at. Yes, go but, ahead, Danny. But you know, um, <clears throat> one of the things that's funny is that they noticed that one of the things Quo mentioned was that he had gone to these conventions and stuff, and all, all the about all the, the causes that these Christian right uh, people are pushing. Mm-hmm. And there's not nothing. There's nothing about the poor. That's a very good. They're point, never. Yes. They're never pushing the poor. It's all about the horrors of abortion or or gays, gays and lesbians <clears throat> or gay sex marriage or nothing about the poor. Well, if you look at the Bible, it's like almost all about what you should do for the poor. Uh, of course. And of course, they've that they've bought into the whole market ideology. The market is God, and if the market makes poor people like the you know the homeless people that we see on the street, hey, they've adopted that. They're really they're ignoring most of the Bible and, and adopting that other. It's quite amazing uh, how Christianity has been uh, has been bought and sold by the Republicans, and what is being touted as Christian virtue. Uh, it's it's really uh, it's really amazing. At some point, uh, somewhere along the way, people will realize that this has been like some one long nightmare. And yeah. uh, although I'm not a religious person, I can imagine many religious people well, finally waking up to the fact that look at what's going on here. Look at what is really actually going on here. What is happening? Well, according to the polls, the sooner the, the better. The um, the latest I've got there's a website electoral <clears throat> vote. Electoral-vote.com. Electoral-vote it's a great uh, website. Uh, that was on my list of things um, to uh, mention. Yeah, and uh, if you look at it now, I believe the last I looked at it, according to them, the Senate will be 50, 50, to 50 Democrats to 49 Republicans and one Independent. Right. Bernie Sanders is the Independent. Right. And then the, the House will be over 225 or something, the two, to 210 or something. Um, I, I have to page back and get you the number, 226 to 205 yeah. with four ties under... Is the current projection? So, from if you really believe that, and and, and it's this is it looks like it's going to be a tremendous upset. Combination of uh, combination of data from various polling sources. Yeah, fifty to forty nine to one, 
for the Senate is current projection with uh, Virginia being uh, one of the uh, barely GOP states that we could see. There are two Republicans running, really. There's the official Republican, uh, who, oh, uh, who we know, Senator uh, Makaka. Allen, right. Uh, George Allen. Allen yeah. uh, and the, and he's being... He's being uh, Chased by another uh, Republican. By another Jim Republican, Webb, uh, Webb who, is, uh, who is actually running as a Democrat. And uh, similarly to Casey and Santorum. Santorum, right. Uh, two other Republicans. I'm going, I, know that least, I, I know that I will wind up voting for Casey, but... But in an absolute sense, uh, I, I don't really support uh, Casey's uh, many of Casey's policies. But as I saw a bumper sticker for uh, for Bob Casey uh, recently, it said, "Bob Casey, uh, well, he's not Rick Santorum." <laughs> and yeah. uh, I think uh, the, the the number one thing that's going on there is, uh, you know, Rick Santorum has a huge, 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 huge liability, which is Rick Santorum. And uh, he has been unable to shake uh, that liability. He's been unable to run away from himself. And this is uh, delightful, of course, because I certainly hope to see him hoist by his own petard. Yeah, but despite uh, the, the, even though these we call them these Democrat, these Republicans who are actually labeled as Democrats, <clears throat> uh, like Lieberman. Casey Lieberman Webb, uh, the the thing is that even if if they win, it still would allow. The Democrats to control the Senate, which means that they get to control the investigations, get to control the flow of of, um, of uh, legal, you know, of, of bills through the Congress and, and right. scheduling things and all of that stuff. Might so, actually look into what's right, been going been on a, here. Essentially, no investigation of the Bush administration. Uh, at of all. which there are rumors, there are rumor, repeated rumors that Cheney, uh, the Cheney administration, is uh, preparing to pardon uh, Louis Libby. Uh, before uh, January, because uh, they're they're fearful, particularly with the outcome of the election. If uh, the if the Democrats do take over, I would be willing to bet that they will do that. Um, because, so there's no uh, plea bargain. They don't need him. No. Uh, yeah, they don't need him telling any tales. Well, wait a minute. But if he's plea, uh, wait, sure. uh, don't they? But they have they subpoena him anyway. Uh, we're at the end of our. We're at the okay. end. We're at the end of. Uh, we're at the end of the hour. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Left Out. Thank you to Matt Horniak for producing today's program, and we will be back in two weeks time.